0: 8. T.S. But as the former do only good it is not thought necessary to pay them any attention, all the efforts are to induce the evil spirits not to act, they are supposed to have power over hunting, fishing, household affairs, and the health and well-being of animals and men, the shamans possess great power over their superstitious subjects, and their commands are rarely refused, I heard of an instance wherein a native caught a fine sable and preserved the skin as a trophy. Very soon a man in the village fell ill. The shaman after practicing his art announced that the spirit commanded the sable skin to be worn by the doctor himself. The valuable fur was given up without hesitation. A Russian traveler stopping one night in a Gilyak house discovered in the morning that his sledge was missing, and was gravely told that the spirit had taken it. In 1814 the smallpox raged in one of the tribes living on the Kalina River, and the deaths from it were numerous. The shamans practiced all their mysteries, and invoked the spirits, but they could not stop the disease. Finally, after new invocations, they declared the evil spirits could not be appeased without the death of Cochin, a chief of the tribe. This chief was so generally loved and respected that the people refused to obey the shamans, but as the malady made new progress, Cochin magnanimously came forward and was stabbed by his own son. In general the shamans are held in check by the belief that should they abuse their power they will be long and severely punished after death. This punishment is supposed to occur in a locality specially devoted to bad shamans. A good shaman who has performed wonderful cures receives after death a magnificent tomb to his memory. The Russians think that with educated Gilyaks they can succeed in winning the natives to Christianity. Especially when the missionaries are skilled in the useful arts of civilized life hence the school in Mihailovsky, and it has so far succeeded well in the instruction of the boys. Russian and Gilyak children were working in the gardens in perfect harmony, and there was every indication of good feeling between natives and settlers. Chapter XII On leaving Mihailovsky we took the merchant and two priests and dropped them fifteen miles above, at a village where a church was being dedicated. The people were in their holiday costume and evidently awaited the priests the church was pointed out, nestling in the forest just back of the river bank, it seemed more than large enough for the wants of the people, and was the second structure of the kind in a settlement ten years old, I have been told, but I presume not with literal truth, that a church is the first building erected in a Russian colony, at night we ran until the setting of the moon, and then anchored, it is the custom to anchor or tie up at night unless there is a good moon or a very clear starlight. An hour after we entered the stars became so bright that we proceeded and ran until daylight, reaching Mariansk at 2 in the morning. I had designed calling upon two gentlemen and a lady at Mariansk, but it is not the fashion in Russia to make visits between midnight and daybreak. Borstein had the claim of old acquaintance and waked a friend for a little talk. This town is at the entrance of Kesey Lake, and next to Nikolaevsk is the oldest Russian settlement on the lower Anur. It was founded by the Russian-American company in the same year with Nikolaevsk, and was a trading post until the military occupation of the river. Difficulties of navigation have diminished its military importance, the principal rendezvous of this region being transferred to Sofysk. On an island opposite Mariansk is the trace of a fortification built by Spinoff, a Russian adventurer who descended the Amur in 1654. Spinov passed the winter at this point and fortified himself to be secure against the natives. He seems to have engaged in a general business of filibustering on joint account of himself and his government. In the winter of his residence at this fortress he collected nearly 5,000 sable skins as a tribute to his emperor and himself. Morning found us at Sofi's taking a fresh supply of wood. This town was founded a few years ago, and has a decided appearance of newness. There is a wagon road along the shore of Kesey Lake and across the hills to Castries Bay. Light draft steamboats can go within 12 miles of Castries. Surveys have been made with the design of connecting Kesey Lake and the Gulf of Chartary by a canal. A railway has also been proposed, but neither enterprise will be undertaken for many years. I passed an hour with the post commander, who had just received a pile of papers only two months from St. Petersburg. The mail having arrived the day before. The steamer telegraph lay at the landing when we arrived, among her passengers was a manger merchant, who possessed an intelligent face, quite in contrast with the sleepy Gillyaks. He wore the manger dress, consisting of wide trousers and a long robe reaching to his heels, his shoes and hat were Chinese, and his robe was held at the waist with a silk cord, his hair was braided in the Chinese fashion, and he sported a long moustache but no beard. A few versts above Sofisque met a manger merchant evidently on a trading expedition. He had a boat about 25 feet long by 8 wide, with a single mast carrying a square sail. His boat was full of boxes and bales and had a crew of four men. A small skiff was towed astern, and another alongside. These manger merchants are quite enterprising, and engage in traffic for small profits and large risks when better terms are not attainable. Before the Russian occupation all the trade of the lower Amor was in Manjar hands. Boats annually descended from Sansin and Adun bringing supplies for native use. Sometimes a merchant would spend five or six months making his round journey. The merchants visited the villages on the route and bargained their goods for furs. There was an annual fair at the Gilyak village of Pool, below Varyansk, and this was made the center of commerce. The fair lasted ten days and during that time pool was a miniature nine Novgorod. Manjar and Chinese merchants met Japanese from the island of Sakhalin, Tungus from the coast of the Okhotsk Sea, and others from the headwaters of the Zaya and Angun. There were gilyaks from the Lower Amur and various tribes of natives from the coast of Manjuria. A dozen languages were spoken, and traffic was conducted in a patwa of all the dialects, cloth, powder, lead, knives, and brandy were exchanged for skins and furs, a gentleman who attended one of these fairs told me that the scene was full of interest and abounded in amusing incidents, of late years the navigation of the Amor has discontinued the fair of pool, the manger traders still descend the river, but they are not as numerous as of yore, with a good glass from the deck of the steamer I watched the native process of catching salmon, the fishing stations are generally, though not always, near the villages, The natives use gill nets and sames in some localities, and scoop nets in others. Sometimes they build a fence at right angles to the shore, and extend it twenty or thirty yards into the stream. This fence is fish-proof, except in a few places where holes are purposely left. The natives lie in wait with skiffs and hand nets and catch the salmon. As they attempt to pass these holes, I watched a gilliac taking fish in this way, and think he dipped them up at the rate of two a minute. When the fish are running well a skiff can be filled in a short time. Sometimes pens of whipper work are fixed to enclose the fish after they pass the holes in the fence. The salmon in this case has a practical illustration of life in general. Easy to get into trouble but difficult to get out of it. For catching sturgeon they use a circular net 5 feet across at the opening. And shaped like a shallow bag. One side of the mouth is fitted with corks and the other with weights of lead or iron two canoes in midstream hold this net between them. At right angles to the current, the sturgeon descending the river enters the trap, and the net proceeds of the enterprise are divided between the fishermen. It requires vision or a guide to find a fishing station, but the sense of smell is quite sufficient to discover where salmon are dressed and cured. The awful from the fish creates an unpleasant stench and no effort is made to clear it away. The natives and their dogs do not consider the scent disagreeable and have no occasion to consult the tastes or smell of others. The first time I visited one of their fish-curing places I thought of the western city that had, after a freshet, 45 distinct and different odors besides several wards to hear from. Above Mariansk the Amor Valley is often 10 or 20 miles wide, enclosing whole labyrinths of islands, some of great extent. These islands are generally well out of water and not liable to overflow. Very few have the temporary appearance of the islands of the lower Mississippi. Here and there were small islands of slight elevation and covered with cottonwoods, precisely like those growing between Memphis and Cairo. The banks of this part of the Amour do not wash like the alluvial lands along the Mississippi and Missouri, but are more like the shores of the Ohio. They are generally covered with grass or bushes down to the edge of the water. There are no shifting sandbars to perplex the pilot. But the channel remains with little change from year to year. I saw very little driftwood and heard no mention of snags. The general features of the scenery were much like those below Mihailovsky. The numerous islands and the labyrinth of channels often permit boats to pass each other without their captains knowing it. One day we saw a faint line of smoke across an island three or four miles wide. Watching it closely I found it was in motion and evidently came from a descending steamboat. On another occasion we missed in these channels a boat our captain was desirous of hailing. Once while General Munray Beef was ascending the river he was passed by a courier who was bringing him important dispatches. The pilot fears with a chart of the river before him, and relies partly upon his experience and partly upon the delineated route. Sometimes channels used at high water are not navigable when the river is low and some are favorable for descent but not for ascent, in general the pilotage is far more facile than on the Mississippi, and accidents are not frequent, the peasants always came to the bank where we stopped, no matter what the hour, at one place where we took wood at night there was a picturesque group of 25 or 30 gathered around a fire, men and women talking, laughing, smoking, and watching the crew at work, the light, of the fire poured full upon a few figures and brought them into strong relief, while others were half hidden in shadow, of the men some wore coats of sheepskin, others Cossack coats of gray cloth, some had caps of faded cloth, and others tartar caps of black sheepskin, red beards, white beards, black beards, and smooth faces were played upon by the dancing flames, the women, were in hoopless dresses, and held shawls over their heads in place of bonnets, A hundred versts above so the scenery changed, the mountains on the south bank receded from the river and were more broken and destitute of trees, wide strips of lowland covered with forest intervened between the mountains and the shore, on the north the general character of the country remained, I observed a mountain, wooded to the top and sloping regularly, that had a curious formation at its summit, it was a perpendicular shaft resembling Dunker Hill monument, and rising from the highest point of the mountain, it appeared of perfect symmetry and seemed more like a work of art than of nature. On the same mountain, halfway down its side, was a mass of rock with towers and buttresses that likened it to a cathedral. These formations were especially curious, as there were no more of the kind in the vicinity. Borstein observed the rocks soon after I discovered them, and at first thought they were ancient monuments. There were many birds along the shore. Very often we dispersed flocks of ducks and sent them flying over islands and forests to places of safety. Snipe were numerous, and so were several kinds of wading and swimming birds. Very often we saw high in air the wild geese of Siberia flying to the southward in those triangular squadrons that they form everywhere over the world. These birds winter in the south of China, Siam, and India, while they pass the summer north of the range of the Yablonoi Mountains. The birds of the anor belong generally to the species found in the same latitudes of Europe and America, but there are some birds of passage that are natives of southern Asia, Japan, the Philippine Islands, and even South Africa and Australia. Seven-tenths of the birds of the anor are found in Europe, two-tenths in Siberia, and one-tenth in regions further south. Some birds belong more properly to America. Such as the Canada Woodcock and the Water Ozel, and there are several birds common to the east and west coasts of the Pacific. The naturalists who came here at the Russian occupation found two Australian birds on the Amur, two from tropical and subtropical Africa, and one from southern Asia. The number of stationary birds is not great. In consequence of the excessive cold in winter, Mr. Mock enumerates 39 species that dwell here the entire year. They include eagles, hawks, jays, magpies, crows, grouse, owls, woodpeckers, and some others. The birds of passage generally arrive at the end of April or during May, and leave in September or October. It is a curious fact that they come later to Nikolaevsk than to the town of Yakutsk, 9 degrees further north. This is due to differences of climate and the configuration of the country. The lower anor is remarkable for its large quantities of snow and at Nikolaivsh, it remains on the ground till the end of May. South of the lower Amur are the Shanalin Mountains, which arrest the progress of birds. On the upper Amur and in Transbaikal very little snow falls, and there are no mountains of great height. The day after leaving Sofis, I observed a native propelling a boat by pulling both oars together. On my expressing surprise my companion said, We have passed the country of the Gilyaks, who pull their oars alternately, and entered that of the Mangoons and Goulds, the manner of rowing distinguishes the Giliacs from all others. The Mangoons, Golds, and gilyaks differ in much the same way that the tribes of American Indians are different. They are all of Tungusian or Mongolian stock, and have many traits and words in common. Their features have the same general characteristics and their languages are as much alike as those of Cheyenne and Comanche. Each people has its peculiar customs, such as the style of dress, the mode of constructing a house, or rowing a boat, all are pagans and indulge in shamanism, but each tribe has forms of its own, all are fishers and hunters, their principal support being derived from the river, the goldy boat was so much like a gilliac one that I could see no difference, there was no opportunity to examine it closely, as we passed at a distance of two or three hundred feet, besides their boats of wood the golds make canoes of birch bark, quite broad in the middle and coming to a point at both ends, In general appearance these canoes resemble those of the Penobscot and Canadian Indians. The native sits in the middle of his canoe and propels himself with a double-bladed oar, which he dips into the water with regular alternations from one side to the other. The canoes are flat-bottomed and very easy to overturn. A canoe is designed to carry but one man, though two can be taken in an emergency. When a native sitting in one of them spears a fish he moves only his arm and keeps his body motionless. At the Russian village of Goran there was an Ispravnik who had charge of a district containing 19 villages with about 1500 inhabitants. At Gorin, the river is 2 or 3 miles wide, and makes a graceful bend. We landed near a pile of ash logs awaiting shipment to Nikolaevsk. The Ispravnik was kind enough to give me the model of a Goldie canoe about 18 inches long and complete in all particulars. It was made by one Anaka Katanovich, chief of an ancient Goldie family. And authorized by the Emperor of China to wear the uniform of a Mandarin. The canoe was neatly formed, and reflected favorably upon the skill of its designer. I boxed it carefully and sent it to Nikolaevsk for shipment to America. The Ispravnik controlled the district between Hodorovka and Sofizg on both banks of the river, his power extending over native and Russian alike. He said that this part of the Anor Valley was very fertile, the yield of wheat and rye being fifteen times the seed. The principal articles cultivated were wheat, rye, hemp, and garden vegetables, and he thought the grain product of 1866 in his district would be 30,000 poods of wheat and the same of rye, with a population of 1,500 in a new country. This result was very good. The Golds do not engage in agriculture as a business. Now and then there was a small garden, but it was of very little importance. Since the Russian occupation the natives have changed their allegiance from China to the White Tsar, as they call the Muscovite Emperor, formerly they were much oppressed by the Manjar officials, who displayed great rapacity in collecting tribute, it was no unusual occurrence for a native to be tied up and whipped to compel him to bring out all his treasures, the Golds call the manjurs rats, in consequence of their greediness and destructive powers, the Golds are superior to the Giliacs in numbers and intelligence and the Mangers of Igun and vicinity are in turn superior to the Golds. The Chinese are more civilized than the Mangers, and call the latter dogs. The Mangers take revenge by applying the epithet to the Golds, and these transfer it to Mangoons and Gilyaks. The Mangoons are not in large numbers, and live along the river between the Gilyaks and Golds. Many of the Russian officials include them with the latter, and the captain of the Ingoda was almost unaware of their existence. A peculiar kind of fence employed by the Russian settlers on this part of the Amor attracted my attention. Stakes were driven into the ground a foot apart and seven feet high. Willow sticks were then woven between these stakes in a sort of basket work. The fence was impervious to anything larger than a rat, and no sensible man would attempt climbing it, unless pursued by a bull or a sheriff, as the upper ends of the sticks were very sharp and about as convenient to sit upon as a row of harrow teeth. It reminded me of a fence in an American village where I once lived, that an enterprising fruit grower had put around his orchard, a structure of upright pickets, and each picket armed with a nail in the top. One night four individuals bent on stealing apples, were confronted by the owner and a bulldog and forced to surrender or leak the fence. Three of them were, treed, by the dog, the fourth sprang over the fence, but left the seat of his trousers and the rear section of his shirt the latter bearing in indelible ink the name of the wearer, the circumstantial evidence was so strong against him that he did not attempt an alibi, and he was unable to sit down for nearly a fortnight. Chapter XIV. I took the first opportunity to enter a goldie house and study the customs of the people. A goldie dwelling for permanent habitation has four walls and a roof. The sides and ends are of hewn boards or small poles made into a close fence which is generally double and has a space six or eight inches wide filled with grass and leaves. Inside and out the dwelling is plastered with mud, and the roofs are thatch or bark held in place by poles and stones. Sometimes they are entirely of poles. The doors are of hewn plank, and can be fastened on the inside. The dwellings are from fifteen to forty feet square, according to the size of the family. In one, I found a grandfather and his descendants, thirty persons at least, there are usually two windows, made of fish skin or thin paper over lattices. Some windows were closed with mats that could be rolled up or lowered at will. The fireplace has a deep pan or kettle fixed over it, and there is room for a pot suspended from a rafter. Around the room is a divan or low bench of boards or wicker work, serving as a sofa by day and a bed at night. When dogs are kept in the house, a portion of the divan belongs to them and among the mancoons there is a table in the center specially reserved for feeding the dogs, I found the floors of clay, smooth and hard, near the fireplace a little fire of charcoal is kept constantly burning in a shallow hole, pikes are lighted at this fire, and small things can be warmed over it, household articles were hung upon the rafters and cross beams, and there was generally a closet for tableware and other valuables, the crossbeams were sufficiently close to afford storage room for considerable property. Fish nets, sledges, and canoes were the most bulky articles I saw there. Part of one wall was reserved for religious purposes, and covered with bare skulls and bones, horse hair, wooden idols, and pieces of colored cloth. Occasionally there were badly painted pictures, purchased from the Chinese at enormous prices. Sometimes poles shaped like small idols are fixed before the houses. A Goldie House is warmed by means of wooden pipes under the divan and passing out underground to a chimney 10 or 15 feet from the building. Great economy is shown in using fuel and great care against conflagrations. I was not able to stand erect in any Goldie Houses I entered. Like all people of the Mongolian race, the natives pretended to have little curiosity. When we landed at their villages many continued their occupations and paid no attention to strangers. Above Goran, a goldy gentleman took me into his house, where a woman placed a mat on the divan and motioned me to a seat. The man tendered me a piece of dried fish, which I ate out of courtesy to my hosts. Several children gathered to look at me, but retired on a gesture from familiars. I am not able to say if the fact that my eyes were attracted to a pretty girl of seventeen had anything to do with the dispersal of the group. Curiosity dwells in Mongol breasts, but the Asiatics like our Indians. Consider its exhibition in bad taste. Outside this man's house there were many scaffoldings for drying fish. A tame eagle was fastened with a long chain to one of the scaffolds, he was supposed to keep other birds away and was a pet of his owner. There were many dogs walking or lying around loose, while others were tied to the posts that supported the scaffolds. The dogs of the golds are very intelligent. One morning Mr. Mott missed his pots which he had left the night before full of meat. After some search they were found in the woods near the village. Overturned and empty, several dogs were prowling about and had evidently committed the theft. Fearing to be interrupted at their meal they carried the pots where they could eat at leisure. While steaming up the river I frequently saw temporary dwellings of poles and bark like our Indian wigwams. These were at the fishing stations upon sandbars or low islands. The afternoon following our departure from I counted about thirty huts, or yurts, on one island, and more than fifty boats on the river. For half a mile the scene was animated and interesting. Some boats were near the shore, their inmates hauling sames or paddling up or down the stream. In one heavily laden boat there was one man steering with a paddle. Four men towed the craft against the current, and behind it was another drawn by six dogs. Out in the river were small skiffs and canoes in couples, engaged in holding nets across the direction of the current, the paddles were struck regularly and slowly to prevent drifting down the stream, one boat with two men rowing and another steering attempted a race with the steamer and fairly passed us, though we were making ten miles an hour, all these natives are very skillful in managing their boats, when we passed near a boat we were greeted with Mandaub, Mendao, the Mongol word of welcome. Sometimes we were hailed with the Russian salutation of Sdrzvt. In one boat I saw a goldie bell dressed with considerable taste and wearing a ring in the cartilage of her nose. How powerful are the mandates of fashion! This damsel would scorn to wear her pendants after the manner of Paris and New York. While the ladies of Broadway and the boulevards would equally reject the goldie custom. The natives of this part of the Amor have a three-pronged spear like a Neptune's trident, and handle it with much dexterity. The spearhead is attached to a long line, and when a fish is struck the handle is withdrawn. The fish runs out the line, which is either held in the hand or attached to a bladder floating on the water. Ropes and nets are made from hemp and the common stin nettle, the latter being preferred. The nettle stalks are soaked in water and then dried and pounded till the fibers separate. Ropes and cords are equal to those of civilized manufacture, though sometimes not quite as smooth. Thread for sewing and embroidery comes from China and is purchased of manger traders, the night after we left Goran, the boat took wood at the village of Dolo, it was midnight when we arrived, and as I walked through the village nearly all the inhabitants were sleeping, the only perambulating resident was very drunk and manifested a desire to embrace me, but as I did not know his language and could not claim relationship I declined the honor, near the river there was a large building for government stores and a smaller one for the men guarding it, A few hundred yards distant there was a Goldy village, and for want of something better Borstein proposed that we should call on one of its inhabitants. We took a Russian peasant to guide and introduce us, our credentials and passports having been left on the steamer. As we approached the first house we were greeted by at least a dozen dogs, they barked on all keys and our guide thought it judicious to provide himself with a stick, but I must do the brutes the justice to say that they made no attempt at dentistry upon our legs. Some of them were large enough to consume ten pounds of beef at a sitting, and some too small for any but ornamental purposes, the door was not locked and the peasant entered without warning, while we stood outside among the dogs, our guide aroused the chief of the establishment and made a light, a strip of birch bark was used, and it took a good deal of blowing on the fire coals before a flame was produced. When we entered we found the proprietor standing in a short garment and rubbing his oblique eyes to get himself thoroughly awake, near the place he had vacated. The lady of the house was huddled under a coverlet about as large as a postage stamp, and did not appear encumbered with much clothing. Three or four others had waked and made some attempt to cover themselves. At least a dozen remained asleep and lay in a charming condition of nudity. The Goldie houses are heated to a high degree, and their inmates sleep without clothing. The delay in admitting us was to permit the head of the house to dress in reception costume, which he did by putting on his shirt. After wishing this and original a long and happy life, and thanking him for his courtesy, we departed. I bumped my head against the rafters both in entering and leaving, and found considerable difference between the temperature in the house and out of it. The peasant offered to guide us to visit more golds, but we returned to the boat and retired to sleep. The Russian peasants and the natives live in perfect harmony and are of mutual advantage and assistance. The peasant furnishes the native with salt, flour, and other things, while the latter catches fish. Enough for both. Each has a peaceable disposition, and I was told that corals were of rare occurrence. The Chinese call the natives upitaza, which in English means wearers of fish skins. I saw many garments of fish skins, most of them for summer use. The operation of preparing them is quite simple. The skins are dried and afterward pounded, the blows making them flexible and removing the scales. This done they are ready to be sewn into garments. A coat of this material embroidered and otherwise decorated is far from ugly, and sheds water like India rubber. Fish skins are used in making sails for boats and for the windows of houses. A Russian who had worn a goldy coat said it was both warm and waterproof and he suggested that it would be well to adopt fish-skin garments in America. The Golds and Mangoons practice shamanism in its general features, and have a few customs peculiar to themselves. At a Goldie village I saw a man wearing a wooden representation of an arm, and learned that it is the practice to wear amulets to cure disease. The amulet being shaped like the part affected, a lame person carries a small leg of wood, an individual suffering from dyspepsia a little stomach, and so on through a variety of disorders, a hypochondriac who thought himself afflicted all over had covered himself with these wooden devices, and looked like a museum of anatomy on its travels, I thought the custom not unknown in America, as I had seen ladies in New York wearing hearts of coral and other substances on their watch chains, evidently the fashion comes from Lamor. the morning after leaving Dolo we had a rainstorm with high wine that blew us on The river was four or five miles wide where the gale caught us, and the banks on both sides were low. The islands in this part of the river were numerous and extensive. At one place there are three channels, each a mile and a half wide and all navigable. From one bank to the other straight across the islands is a distance of 19 miles. The wind and weather prevented our making much progress on that day, as the night was cloudy we tied up near a Russian village and economized the darkness by taking wood. At a peasant's house near the landing four white-headed children were taking their suppers of bread and soup under the supervision of their mother. Light was furnished from an apparatus like a fishing jack attached to the wall, every few minutes the woman federal it with a splinter of pine wood. Very few of the peasants on the Amor can afford the expensive candles, and as they rarely have fireplaces they must burn pine splinters in this way. Along the Amor nearly every peasant house contains hundreds, and I think thousands, of cockroaches. They are quiet in the day but do end.